Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law and border-related issues. I'm Steve Murens. On September 20, 2021, Canada will have its 44th parliamentary election. There are six main political parties running. The first is the Liberal Party of Canada, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The Liberals are generally regarded as a centrist party and have governed since October 2015. The second is the Conservative Party of Canada, led by Aaron O'Toole. The Conservatives are a centre-right party that previously governed Canada from 2006 to 2015 under Stephen Harper. The third is the New Democratic Party, a left-wing party led by Jagmeet Singh. The fourth is the Green Party of Canada, led by Annamie Paul, a party that is typically known for its environmental platform. The fifth is the Bloc Québécois, led by Yves-François Blanchet, and the Bloc is a Quebec nationalist party that only runs candidates in Quebec. Finally, there is the People's Party of Canada, a right-wing party led by Maxime Bernier. As of writing, polls suggests that Canada is likely heading to a minority government. This means that none of the political parties that I just mentioned will win enough seats to govern without the support of another party. Assuming that all of the above parties win seats and that there is a minority government, neither of which is guaranteed, it's important to understand the political and the policy preferences of these parties as any of them in theory could have influence on the next government. As well, if Canadian immigration policies interest you, and presumably they do or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast, or if they are a factor in how you vote, you may want to know more about the various immigration platforms of Canada's political parties. And that is our topic for today. We will be discussing the immigration platforms of all of Canada's major political parties, although there is a bit of an uh, emphasis on the Liberals and the Conservatives as these are the most detailed of the uh, various platforms. Deanna and I are joined for this by Chantelle Deloge. Chantelle is the founder and senior partner of Deloge Law Group. In addition to running her own law firm, she has taught immigration law at Osgoode Hall Law School and served in Seneca College's Immigration Practitioner Certificate Program from 1999 to 2010. She teaches current and aspiring immigration consultants at both IMEDA and Le Pen and is currently assisting the Queen's University Law School in developing its curriculum for its graduate diploma in immigration and citizenship law. She's also the author of uh, the Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, a practitioner's handbook available for sale through Iman Publishing, and apparently she's even going to be starting her own podcast soon through Iman Publishing. Chantelle's been called upon dozens of times by parliamentary and Senate committees to appear as an expert witness on immigration and refugee issues, and is a regular commentator on numerous media outlets. She can be reached at on Twitter at TW Immigration. So at TW Immigration. Uh, I can be reached at S uh, on Twitter at, at S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S. And uh, Deanna is not on Twitter, but she can be reached at email, by email. Her email is D-E-A-N-N-A at M-C-C-R-E-A law.ca. Uh, once again, if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes, and I hope you enjoy today's episode.
Good morning. Uh, so we are joined today by Chantal Deloge, uh, our, one of our esteemed colleagues from, from Toronto. Uh, and we were hoping to discuss, uh, as we did at our last federal election, uh, the, the different parties' approach to the immigration platform. But we thought we would start today by just talking generally about uh, how we feel uh, you know, just the general mood around this election and just everyone's sort of overall thoughts around how they felt about this, this campaign kind of being sprung upon us prematurely. And uh, just sort of um, first instinct reactions to um, how we feel the campaign has surprised, uh, astonished us in the, in the early days so far of this uh, very short campaign. And then I think what we're going to do is go through the immigration platforms being presented by the different parties. And just um, Steve and Chantal and I will offer our thoughts um, about some of the ideas that are being put forward um, and just have a general discussion and, and talk about some of the questions that have been put forward by, by members. So um, so I don't know, I, I don't have any um, specific ideas, but maybe we can just sort of have a general discussion about what everybody thought when this, um, about, you know, what was the thinking behind this very, very early days uh, election campaign coming, coming to the Canadian public? What was your first reaction? Uh, well, I, I think, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go no, ahead, go Stephen. Go for it. <laughs> I was going to say that, I mean, nobody calls an election early unless they think they're in a good position to win. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people really felt going into the campaign and to the election announcement that this was likely to be a Justin Trudeau coronation. And I think the Liberals thought that too. And what's been surprising, I think, to a lot of people is that it hasn't really turned out that way. And I, I think... Part of the reason why that is, is that there's a lot of latent and not so latent anger <laughs> in society, um, you know, call it pandemic anger or whatever you want to. But I think people are really, really upset right now. And um, it, it's reflecting uh, in, in their choices, uh, um, you know, in, in polling uh, and, you know, the stuff that you see at campaign stops where people are becoming extremely angry to the point of being physical. I think this is something that's really taken everyone by surprise. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what you say. To me, though, I was surprised that anybody thought that this was going to be the time for a coronation because I, I didn't, I, I thought perhaps maybe earlier in the pandemic when um, there was more that sense of that feeling of good governance. I, I didn't anticipate that this was going to be a cakewalk for for the Liberals. I was really, I thought it was a bit tone deaf in, in the sense that like um, I was, I, I sort of, um, yeah, I, it wasn't a surprise to me at all that there was a big pile on. And, you know, I'm no political strategist by any means. I'm probably the, the worst of, among the three of us in terms of anticipating that. But um, it just struck me that it, it seems to me from the get-go like a lazy campaign. And that surprises me reading the Liberal platform. It feels like a lazy campaign. And it, it just is surprising that he didn't think he was going to have to work for this one because uh, I would have thought from the very get-go that this was going to be a hard sell. I mean, he was obviously trying to make a transition from a minority to a majority government. And I was like, really? You thought that this was going to be an easy sell? Like, everyone's tired. They've got big problems. Like, you thought that people were going to have the 
appetite to give you more at this moment. <laughs> I just like, uh, I just felt like it was very ill timing. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think he's going to win himself any favors for sure. Yeah, I mean, my general thoughts are similar. I think they probably witnessed what happened in British Columbia in the fall of 2020 when there was a snap election and the new Democrats greatly increased their seats. And I think the same happened in New Brunswick, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I think they also didn't, I think two things happened that the liberals didn't expect. The first was the first week of the campaign was dominated by the catastrophe in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And that really took away their ability to have a positive message. And it also called into question, why are we having an election? And the second mm-hmm. was the, um, I don't think they expected that the conservatives would have such a detailed platform that I think was released on day one or two of the campaign. So all of a sudden you had the liberals kind of on their heels a bit when it came to Afghanistan, not announcing any ideas. And the conservatives announcing, well, just releasing this detailed platform that didn't read like a traditionally conservative platform as well. And I think that took a lot of people by surprise. And when we talk about their immigration commitments today, that's going to be reflected because the conservative immigration platform is probably the length of all of the other parties combined. I just want to add one other thing, Steve, because I think your points are really brilliant. But I also just, um, I think that that we've made the mistake up until this point of thinking that that underlying discontent was attributable to what's happening south of the border. And I think that this notion that like anger about, you know, taking away of freedoms, about a vaccine uh, mandates, all of that stuff, that that's somebody else's problem. But I think um, just because there have been less active protests, less, you know, public campaigning, that that frustration and the um, the kind of the fractious decision making that's happened across country, that people are really upset about that. And so I think it again just spoke to me about how out of touch the federal government has been with that, um, you know, with those fractious um, sentiments that are going on across the country that people are really unhappy. And the fact that he could be that surprised that he was going to be met by such um, anger on the campaign yeah. trail, like that is pretty out of touch to not have that sense that there's so much, um, and maybe and maybe I'm just, you know, not aware of, of how it feels to be a political being, but it seems to me to be so unaware that that's what kind of sentiment you're going to hit with when you go on the campaign trail. That seems to me like um, pretty telling. I, I also think that, I mean, as a society, we need to be cautious about labeling things as Canadian or un-Canadian. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, this kind of anger that we're seeing at the campaign stops you know, people throwing gravel, um, that sort of thing, that this is a very un-Canadian. Well, it is happening in Canada and it's being perpetrated by Canadian people. So it is Canadian. I think when you divide things into like us and other, you get into a very dangerous territory because you get a big blind spot as to what's happening in your own society. This is not something that is a problem for you know, other countries or other leaders, this is a problem that's happening right here in Canada. For sure. And it's so much like, uh, Chantal, what we talked about years ago around um, things with, uh, you know, um, in terms of the immigration context, when they talk about 
sort of cultural identification and these are sort of Canadian values. Like these things get very, very complicated. And a lot of it just comes down to whether or not things have been effectively or poorly communicated. And if these kinds of strategies around immunization and public safety have not been well communicated, there is often a very, very strong retaliatory sentiment. And that doesn't make it Canadian versus non-Canadian. It just speaks to public policy and how communication has worked. And um, I think that there has been a lot of um, public criticism that the, the, the comm strategy has just been very lacking. And so, um, again, I think that um, that's something that really struck me with this whole thing, that there was this uh, disconnect um, between the um, between the liberal campaigners and, and the, the public, not realizing that there was that, that public sentiment. I remember in 2019, we uh, discussed um, with Peter Edelman back when he was on the podcast before he became a judge, whether we would even cover the PPC immigration platform because they seemed so fringe at the time, likely less than 1% of the vote. And when I checked the polls this morning, I think ECOS was showing that they're north of 10%. Uh, So it's like one of the other big changes from now to 2019 is that I think there's no question that uh, whether we agree with it or not, the message of the PPC is something that needs to be understood and definitely needs to be covered um, because it's likely, well, we'll see. It's hard to know where it's coming from. We were talking about Mm -hmm. before, is it their anti-immigration standpoint that's resonating? Is it anti-vaccine? Is it just anti-establishment? But there is definitely a groundswell of uh, anger, for lack of a better word, in a segment of the electorate. Yeah, when, when people are angry, they become polarized and they tend to adopt positions which, you know, they wouldn't adopt that extreme position if they weren't feeling so upset. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, that may explain some of it. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's been a wild ride the past couple of years. And I mean, how, how could we even think that anything would happen election-wise in the way that it happened before when nothing has happened in the way it did before in the last year or so? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's naive to think otherwise, really, um, that there isn't going to be a bit of an upset. And um, yeah, so um, I mean, I think that that really I mean, maybe we should start by looking at the liberal platform specifically, because I mean, I think that where we've started this conversation is by saying um, that, uh, you know, and I think before we started the podcast, uh, Chantal made the com- the comment that that the 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 platform, the immigration platform from the Liberal Party was was very much speaking in broad generalities, um, almost um, platitudes and goals, but very, very low on specifics. And I think that that is really the starting point just to kind of generalize about what uh, what I think we all would would agree about what we would say about the Liberal platform on immigration. Um, and uh, you know, I don't know if there were specific points, Steve, that you you wanted to pull out um, from that summary, but I think that that is um, that is something that we could say just generally about the the overall structure of it. Uh, it's very generic. Yeah, it's also it's not as ambitious as what they've done. Um, so, like, if you look at what they've done during COVID and since the last election, well, first of all, they had to respond to COVID. They created that TRPR pathway for up to 90,000 applicants to transition from temporary to permanent resident status. They've moved a lot of applications online. Mm -hmm. um, And none of that is really reflected 
in the platform, nor does the platform kind of try to build on it. So yeah, for it's sure. a bit like, it's just, it's, it's just a bit odd Very to me that the platform is less underwhelming or is more underwhelming than what they've done. Yeah. Um, well, and- even, I mean, if you see economic workers, their ambition is to reduce processing times to under 12 months, whereas express entries ambition is to process within six. So yeah. it's sort of like their stretch goal is a lesser goal than what they've been trying to achieve for the last two years. So um, it doesn't really feel like a, a campaign promise. It feels like uh, a fallback. A yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think if, if you if you just look at the verbs that are used, right, like uh, plan to continue, establish, streamline, build on, grow and improve. I mean, these are all like, they're very vague um, statements, right? And very little information as to how they plan to get to that place. I mean, on on any of these. Yeah. So one of their specific platforms is a holdover from 2019, which is to make citizenship application fees free. Uh, Right now it's about $630 for adults and I think a hundred something for minors. Um, My comment on it is the same as... um, in 2019, where I don't understand why they couldn't have done something that was income-based. Uh, like, I don't see why yeah. a multimillionaire should pay zero citizenship fees. Um, or of all the programs, why that would be the one that you would take the fees away. Yeah. Yeah, you why know, not like, caregivers, for example? Exactly. Like, I just don't get it. Or agencies or something, you know, like, it's just, it's just a weird choice. Yeah, um, like, I, I I understand the the desire to have more permanent residents adopt Canadian citizenship and encourage people to sort of go across the finish line, as it were, with their immigration. But um, it, what it what it speaks to to me is that like there still doesn't seem to be any desire to tie the actual cost of processing to the fee. Um, yeah. you, you know, the fees for some things have been the same for ages. Some of them have gone up a little bit, but, but there's very little information available about, you know, what does this actually cost the government mm-hmm. or the taxpayers to, to process these applications? So if it does cost an average of $630 to process someone's citizenship case, I have no problem with someone, you know, paying $630 mm-hmm. um, or, or the same with any of the other categories. Like, there doesn't seem to be much accountability there for, you know, where that money is going or is it commensurate with the amount of work involved yeah or tie yeah. it to income in some way um, but also, i can like, see it being progressively fee-based i work with a lot of very low income clients and i would say that you know when i when i understand what is preventing them from making applications um in a citizenship context um fees don't tend to come up as being the primary reason why they're not applying. It's because of the labor of that application, having to track all the days, having to do all the forms, having to produce all that, you know, like it's, it's the laboriousness of the application. But I mean, they certainly say that in terms of paying the application and landing fees on applying for permanent residency, because at that point they don't have the establishment, but um, I've just, it's just not something that I hear on a regular basis. So if this is science-based, this kind of decision that this is where they need to apply their resources, then you know, how can it be science-based? What's the science behind this? 
I don't know if they have like a lot of feedback that this is some like thing that is a big holding back point for people transitioning to citizenship. It's just, mm. you know, anecdotally, it's not something that I hear. And I hear a lot of complaints about I didn't apply for permanent residency because I couldn't apply for, I couldn't afford the application and landing fees. I hear that regularly, but I've just never heard it in the context of a citizenship application. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's uh, sorry, that was a, uh... I'm so used to hearing the science says this, the science yes, says that yes, when yes. it comes to COVID. And I'm like, I don't understand yes. why this is you science. You got triggered on science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It totally makes sense, Steve. Um, well, I, I remember sort of as an extension to that, I remember um, some time ago, I, I think it might have been our colleague Richard Kurland had brought up this point that there's actually federal legislation that says that you can't charge more for a service than it actually costs the government to provide. So yeah. I have to think that they do have those internal metrics as to what it costs to administer various programs. So really the, the math shouldn't be that hard. The, the stats are there. Isn't that um, what happens at treasury board though, Chantel? Like when they set a cost recovery fee, don't they have to actually demonstrate what the, um, that was my understanding is that when they, and that's why it took them so long to change the application and filing fees is because they have to go through this very laborious exercise of showing what the human labor costs are, and then then they can reset it, but it has to go through treasury board and there is something. So I don't think it's about them not going through that exercise. It's just a matter, it seems to me this proposal to waive it has nothing to do with the human labor cost. It's just some understanding that this should be done on compassionate grounds, I expect, but I, I just don't understand why that that's where they would direct that attention. Well, if, I, if I want to be cynical about it for a minute, I could imagine that, you know, having your citizenship fees waived so that you can feel happy becoming a Canadian might influence your vote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the real thinking. <laughs> yeah. You hear anecdotally yeah, that people confused. like recent permanent residents are inclined to vote for the government that was in power when they became a citizen. Mm. I've heard that theory thrown out. Yeah. Um, so also moving through on the economic side, they will reform economic immigration programs to expand pathways to permanent residents for foreign temporary workers and former international students through the express entry point system. What's weird about that commitment is that they are currently doing these reforms, but it's mm -hmm. outside of express entry. So again, I don't know if this commitment is just holdover from previous, you know, terminologies that they used, because it doesn't seem to reflect what's going, what they're actually doing. Uh, it says that it's going to be done outside of express entry? Or no, it says just... it's going to be through express entry. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, so you're talking about the TR to PR program. Yeah, the TR to PR pathway yeah. was completely outside of express entry. All the new portals that they're creating are outside well, those are for different programs, but I don't, it's hard to okay. see what the tie-in is to express entry here. So let's just say this, which is that, um, and I know that this is sort of off scope for what we're supposed to be doing here, but let's just kind of a moment for the liberal government in review in terms of how they have handled the immigration portfolio. And on that, on that score, I would have to say that the current state of the immigration portfolio, in my view, is a complete dog's breakfast. Like you've got express entry, you've got these other programs built off the side of it. The caregiver program is like an absolute disaster and nobody understands how to navigate their way around it. Like it's just the most um, patchworky it's ever been, I would say. I mean, in my experience, in my time practicing, like 
um, there's no cohesion in terms of this. So to what you're saying, Steve, it's kind of like, it's almost like they inherited the express entry program. They kind of didn't really love it, but they didn't fix it or change it. They didn't go back to the drawing board. They just kind of built these add-ons. And so like, so again, I mean, this, it, it sort of tied into what you're saying about their new platform. It's like, it would be kind of nice to get a sense of what their vision is. Are they going to go to something new? Are they going to keep express entry and keep tacking on this new stuff? Because from my perspective, the user experience of immigration for an outsider who doesn't have a lawyer is walking into this um, system and trying to figure out what options exist and how do you like I'm just a skilled worker, but you have to know to check out express entry, to check out the PNP, to check out the TR to PR. Like, what are these things? Like, there's no, like, there should just be like a single door. You have these skills, here are the options available to you. But the way that it's kind of this patchwork cobblestone thing, and it seems like from what they're, well, that they're just not providing any clarity whatsoever in their campaign platform. And to me, having practiced under this liberal government, I would have liked to have some sense of where they were intending to take all of this. Well, it, it looks to me like, I, I mean, when they talk about expanding pathways to PR for form workers and international students through express entry points, that sounds to me like they're just going to add more points. If, if, you, if you graduated from a Canadian school or if you worked for a year in Canada, you'll just get more points in express entry. But I mean, if that was the goal that, you know, legislatively, that's pretty easy to do. They don't even have to change any laws in order to implement that. So ministerial you know, instructions. Yeah, it could have been done mm -hmm. at, at any time before now. I mean, it's not... Um, you know, it's not something that couldn't have been done earlier. And I mean, frankly, if that's what you're going to do, why wouldn't you state that more clearly? I know a lot, and, a lot and, more points to, you know, foreign students and foreign workers in Canada. That would yeah. be simpler to understand. For sure. And I just don't know why it just makes it hard to understand why they took their last set of new reforms outside of the express entry system. And, um, and, and even just the way that they plummeted the express entry score to 75 points, like there were a lot of moves in the last year that made their rationale for getting their quota up or, to, or meeting their quota, um, a lot of moves that were very head scratching in my, in my view. Yeah, I'm willing to give them like, you know, I think that COVID exposed how vulnerable the immigration system is and how not ready it was for a global pandemic. And that when you saw the amount of people who had to work from home, the amount of visa offices that basically had to close, uh, they, they responded to it moderately well, I think. There's things I would have done different in terms of automatic you know, work permit extensions and whatnot. I do take... Um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, whether it's gaslighting or whether it's lying or whether it's just being vague as to some of the messaging uh, or opaque maybe is the word that I'm like looking for. The, the, the least disparaging word is that there's a real lack of transparency as to, and I think that's what you were getting to as well. Um, and if they had to make, you know, if I had to ask them if they were to stay in power for one commitment, it's to just, level with the public and say, this is what's going on. This is where visa offices are closed. This is why we bid 75 points. The fact that everyone is constantly having to guess as to what's going to happen next yeah. uh, is incredibly frustrating. 
But uncertainty is never good for business. Um, and, and I think, you, you know, you touched on a, a couple of points there. I mean, I think, Deanna, you're right that the system has become like sort of an octopus with like way too many tentacles and too many ins and outs and different programs. And I wonder, like, if that's what happens when you try to be too targeted, like, you, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, caregivers during the pandemic or frontline workers during the pandemic, they did, you know, such an, an incredible contribution towards society or whatever. Okay, let's make a program for them. Okay, let's make a program for these people or those people. But I mean, you know, it's, it's short sighted in the sense that I mean, while that might make you feel good, and it, it might be a good thing to favor those people in some way for public policy reasons, it doesn't make for an overall understandable system when you have like a patchwork quilt of different programs that, you, you know, you have to be a lawyer to understand it. Um, yeah. You know, and even that many of us are, you know, when we talk amongst ourselves, many of us are confused half the time. <laughs> That's not good either. And I, I think Stephen, to your point, like, I, I can't imagine, like, I don't know, maybe this is just complaining, but it's astonishing to me how there was no disaster planning at all, apparently. It's like we all of a sudden we understand the emperor has no clothes. There, you know, we have an entire government ministry of emergency preparedness. And yet <laughs> we couldn't handle, like, forget about the pandemic. If CPC Mississauga had burned to the ground, we would have been like sponsorship applications would have been in the same position. Yeah, for it, sure. It's like one flood, one tornado, one fire away from full disaster. I mean, how do we allow this to happen? I know. No, I'm totally with you, Chantal. And I, I think Steve, that, um, that I'm not as, I'm not as forgiving as you are in the sense that like um, that certainly I give a, a fair bit of leeway in terms of, I understand that this is a big pivot but um, Chantal, I'm with you that there's an entire ministry there for the purposes of uh, for the purpose of emergency preparedness, and our small businesses had to figure out ways of pivot. It was a super not fun year, um, super not fun, and everyone had to to go to their nth degree to try and figure out how to make that pivot happen. Um, but the degree of insanity in decision making that that we are still seeing mm -hmm. um, the degree of insanity and in policy making. And so we talk about, like you talk about Chantal, those programs that have been announced, that program from June, 2019 announced for caregivers. I have filed several, more than a hundred applications. I still have yet to find a single decision. I've received one approval in principle, not a single decision yet. So again, like it's great programming proliferating but no decisions actually being rendered. And, you know, um, and yes, I understand that they're saying, well, these are the types of decisions we're going to focus on, but the kinds of absurdity, I've never litigated so much in my entire life. Um, it's absolutely insane. So I get that there's been like these efforts to pivot, but there's sort of like the basic messaging to decision makers, like, hey, let's try and deal with even a smaller caseload, even like, okay, this is the number that we can have. I don't even know, like, I'm not, I'm not saying that I have the right answers, but I can say that um, the, the degree of absurdity that we're seeing in decision making still hasn't yeah. started to taper off. Well, and it's also something that none of the parties address in their platform. The other parties possibly because they don't know how bad an issue this has become. But what is going to happen with these tens, if not hundreds of thousands of applications that are, whether it's immigration or work permit, were based on jobs that no longer exist, 
study programs that have been completed, are they still going to be processed? Are they going to be canceled? Um, you know, what is the plan for all of these applications? Yeah, no, I don't think there is one. I, I haven't seen a single thing. Like the, the, the only thing that I saw in any of the platforms is like this increased push towards digitization and, and away from paper-based files, which I mean, if that had been done a few years ago, we wouldn't have had half the problems that we did during COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's like a long-term strategy. And it, it's not a politically sexy platform promise, like we're going to put $400 million into increased infrastructure within the immigration yeah. department. I mean, it's not exactly a vote driver, but in fact, it is one of the single most important things to immigration processing in this country. Like I, I said, if it, if it had been done earlier, we wouldn't have had this problem. But call me naive, I really thought that's what was happening under GCMS, that they were like putting everything online, they were making it so a visa officer could be anywhere in the world at any time deciding any application and that those visa office disparities were going to go away. But I think what we really discovered during the pandemic is that those promises were all for naught. But that's what all of the witnesses were saying in parliamentary committee when they were talking about spending that amount of money to do those transformative um, changes years back. So I think that was also part of the disappointment was that um, that it hadn't made the, the system um, scalable, um, transportable in the way that I think most of us would have hoped. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that it exposed was you know, there's this desire to have people across the world processing applications for interviews and whatnot, you know, you develop a local expertise. But during this pandemic, I saw that um, IRCC memo to federal court about why they can't do CTRs out of India. They're not letting anyone in India work remotely. I don't know if it's because the systems aren't good or they just don't trust the local, uh, you know, using Indian networks i would imagine it would be the same in china where we don't want to use you don't want to be have people working off-site in china using you know beijing's firewall and everything for internet and it's this trade-off that i don't know i, I think this exposed a flaw in the trade-off where yeah we want this local expertise but if no one can work remote in those countries it just completely shuts down i honestly didn't i didn't realize that that was part of the issue yeah, I'll send you, um, it was from the, it's why there's no almost, there's no litigation for files in India. There's an agreement with federal court to not request the CTRs. Well, they've started. I just had my first hearing. Yeah. So it's yeah, as of June, though. this was as of June, it was like critical, you know, critical some of services the, uh, only. but critical services only in that they weren't letting any of the locally engaged staff work from home. And they were only about five percent of the Canadians or something were able to work remote and only on functions that were non-critical so it wow. um, yeah like it's right and that were, weren't critical because of the privacy concerns yeah. over taking those critical files wow that's messed up it seems to me though that like it, it doesn't the, doesn't the privacy right belong to the client I mean if if you had a client who was stuck in a backlog and you said, look, we, we can say, we can do your spousal interview over Skype, mm -hmm. for example, but we should tell you that it's not a hundred percent secure platform. And because of local conditions, you know, we can't be sure that the line is hundred percent secure. 
do you still want to go ahead or not and leave that option to them? I mean, I, sure. I, I get it that, okay, for things like, you know, national no security cases or yeah, or refugees, why, why that might be the case, but for a simple administrative interview, are, are you or saying that LMIA we, application or something yeah. like that? Nobody gives a crap. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, if, if the client is, is ready to, to take the digital risk, then that that should be up to them. It shouldn't be up to the government to sort of pa- paternalistically say that, oh, no, if for your own protection, we're only going to do it this way. And that, there's so much regional disparity. I think that's what you're getting at, Stephen, is that like even when you look at digitization. So because I'm doing a lot of mandamus work right now, I'm getting like yeah. all kinds of affidavits and stuff from officers that are giving me insight as to what's oh, wow. going on at each office. And like throughout the entire Caribbean, their their files are not digitized. Yet in, in places like Warsaw, for example, they are. So mm. places like Warsaw can, you know, process files and send them out in regular good order, or like Vienna or whatever. If, if your file is in, is in, you know, Cuba or Port of Spain, for example, well, then you're completely out of luck because it's not digitized. And one of my favorites was um, from the visa office in Ghana, in Accra, um, saying that, you know, we... We, we cannot do telephone or video interviews because of um, identification and integrity concerns in oh the region, <laughs> integrity concerns. So someone in Ugh. Vienna or Germany, it's okay to video interview them, but because of integrity concerns, you can't do it in Africa. What are you actually saying? Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. But also like, I mean, how does identification and verification happen on the phone in any event? Like, I mean, it's literally a series of questions. What, what is the, what is the fact finding mission here? Mm-hmm. Um, so that is super interesting. And I feel like uh, we did do um, a podcast on mandamus and the idea that um, you're getting uh, the department. Uh, like you're you're taking these mandamus applications all the way through to hearing, it sounds like. Yeah, some of them are, are waiting leave right now, like a lot of them settled. And I have to yeah. give Department of Justice their proper due because they really try, like wherever it's possible, yeah. they try to see what they can do, like between their client and my client and try to try to resolve it. I would say like at least half of them have settled, mm-hmm. um, but but some of them are, it looks like they're going to hearing. So wow, that's wild. Let's wait and see. Okay, sorry, we went a bit off uh, <laughs> off course, but that was just another fascination of us that we we've been talking about in other podcasts. Um, so maybe uh, you can help us get back on course, Steve. Um, on the liberal platform, were there other things that we wanted to pull out? There's a, I mean, I can read a couple of the. Again, they're they're not too specific. Establish a trusted employer system to streamline application processes. Again, not clear what that means. Grow and improve the global talent stream program by simplifying permit renewals and upholding the two-week processing time and establishing an employer hotline, which I think they already have. Um, yeah, it's... It's very, very... And then they were talked about um, increasing the resettlement program for Afghan refugees. Yeah, banning oh, uh, foreigners from owning homes unless they plan on immigrating for two years. That seemed like it was a reaction to the uh, conservative promise to do the same. And you were going to say something about the refugee resettlement thing. Yeah, um, the, this is a thorn in my side. So, yeah. uh, I, I mean, he, here's my problem. If, if, if you don't 
want to actually do anything to help Afghan refugees, why don't you just be transparent about that? Okay, so this is me too. And I'm sort of, I'm really glad somebody's saying this. (laughs) (laughs) Because, okay, yeah, go on. (laughs) Tell you what I really think. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I mean, there actually is, like, unless you directly worked with the Canadian government providing assistance to Canadian government or the troops, which is like, an infinitesimal fraction of the people who actually need help. There is no special program for you. There is no special anything, which again, that's a public policy decision. And if that's your decision, then that's fine. But the problem is the media messaging around this, the government is coming out and trying to make it seem like they're doing so much to help Afghan refugees. And it's driving a false hope amongst Mm -hmm. people overseas who think that there is some special kind of program for them. And they're not. And, and when you talk about these resettling 20,000 Afghans, these are all just, again, privately sponsored refugees who yeah. could have been privately sponsored anyway. They could have been privately sponsored a year ago. There's nothing yeah. different here. They're just taking what their quota already is, apportioning a little bit more of that quota for Afghanistan and doing really nothing else. And all this stuff about yeah. women leaders and human rights workers, they still have to be privately sponsored. Yeah. So how, how, does, how does this really help? They haven't even reopened the sponsorship um, whole, uh, agreement holders um, program so that more people can qualify themselves at this time. So really, like, unless you can dig your way to a UNHCR to be able to get recognized, like, you're basically out of luck. Um, and so I do feel, honestly, that the that the campaigning is very dishonest. And I think that it's also caused a real upshot among the public because people who don't understand these issues carefully are saying, well, it's so much easier for Afghan refugees wanting to come to Canada. <laughs> and and so I, I'm hearing that comment a lot and yeah. um, talking about fractious um, elements in society. I'm finding um, that there's just a lot of that around this issue. And I think it's because there's this notion that um, being from Afghanistan suddenly uh, gives you some carte blanche to be able to come to Canada. And I agree with you, Chantal, that it's really false messaging. The one that killed me was in the first week of the campaign, the minister, uh, Marco Mendicino, tweeted, we are now waiving the uh, requirement that Afghan refugees trying to get to the Kabul airport get a COVID test first within 72 hours of departure. Oh my departure. God, amazing. And uh, you just yeah. read that. And all I could think was, I hope they're not expecting to get praise for this. Like, this is nuts. Actually, Canada's the worst military one... mission ended in 2014. And seven years later, we didn't have visas and the paperwork for all the translators and everything. It's crazy. Yeah. There's one yeah. worse that they did, which is that they posted on their website that those who have gained recognition, um, they have sought... Um, they have sought the consent from the Taliban to allow for them to depart Afghanistan <laughs> to come to Canada. I was like, are you actually joking me? <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> that the uh, Taliban has oh, just well. agreed that those who have been recognized as refugees are going to be allowed to leave with no problems. Like, Fantastic. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, world <laughs> peace. Like, you're so great. Don't worry. They say it on the IRCC website. Like, when the reality on the ground is people like are literally like going off comms in order to avoid being detected and um, so it just it sends a really naive, like embarrassingly naive um, impression of Canada's uh, understanding of the international conflict that exists there. 
Yeah. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. We've made a deal with the Taliban. You're fine. The last uh, pledge from the liberal platform is implement a program to issue visas to spouses and children abroad while they wait for the processing of their permanent residency applications so that families can be together sooner. Excellent. And I don't understand why you need a program um, (laughs) or why it hasn't happened already. (laughs) Like all that could be done is just a directive. Um, But but this goes back to what you said, Steve, that this is just about regional disparities. It's not that these programs don't exist. Like, you know, if you're from the UK, you don't need a visa. You could just, you know, show up and enter across the, but if you're coming from, you know, Ghana, good luck. Like they're never going to approve you. Like it's just not the reality. And so it's not that a program needs to exist. The program exists, but how are you going to get around the overstay risk issue when you apply to the visa office? Well, it requires regulatory change, I would think, because I like if if they're going to say that you don't have to meet the legal test for a visitor anymore, if you're applying in a certain category, you actually have to change the regulations because the regs are pretty clear. Like you have to be able to demonstrate that you're a genuine temporary entry and that you're going to leave Canada when your visa is finished. Fair enough, but they would still need to get through the genuineness assessment before they would still need to determine that you're a member of the family class. Right. Um, and so and that's and what it, takes it, all the time, by the way. Exactly. That's the <laughs> problem. So and that's why, you know, applications um, in certain countries are lagging well behind applications from other countries is that, you know, they, they don't have any problem saying that there are countries that they triage for faster processing because um, they don't have the same integrity concerns. It goes back to the same thing that you're mentioning about. Um, you know, why mandamus, like these things come up on mandamus applications from Ghana that don't come up in in, um, mandamus applications in Vienna. It's because they'll say, well, there are more integrity concerns. And I mean, when you see, I mean, we all know this, when you, when you see the, the, the notes on a, on a family class credibility kind of assessment, when somebody uh, comes from, you know, a particular country, they go through this very microscopic assessment of what constitutes genuineness when people come from certain countries. So I think regulatory change is one thing, but it's really still a qualitative assessment that's being made at the visa office, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to get around. I mean, unless you're going to make it automatic, how, how are you going to get around those concerns? I mean, unless you tell visa officers that it's okay, to give someone a visitor visa in this category, even if you don't believe that they're gonna obey the conditions of the visa. Like, in, unless you say that, I don't see how it can work. Yeah, me neither. And I, I mean, really by, the t- by, by the time someone has satisfied an officer that their marriage is genuine, at that point, like nine tenths of your wait is already over. For sure. You just have to give them a couple of police clearances and you get your, your visa. So how does it really help that much, right? Yeah, exactly. Agreed. But again, it's just because it's so thin on details that we don't really have the ability to assess it materially. Yeah. So before we move on to the conservatives, any final thoughts on the liberals? I'm still willing to give them like the credit of, okay, it was a crazy pandemic and it still is. Um, And I think they did a lot. I'm still, and I'm just surprised that their platform doesn't reflect um, kind of what they actually achieved and any bold plans for the future. Yeah, it's kind of a, a missed opportunity, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a missed opportunity to to showcase like 
you know, if, if they have these excellent ideas and they have an implementation plan in place, you know, what, what, what is it? Do you read anything into there not being a specific immigration section, unlike all the other parties and unlike past liberal uh, platforms? I don't particularly. Um, it, it, I'll be honest, like the whole thing just sort of looks rushed. Yeah. And, you know, they did release their platform very late. Um, so I almost wonder if that was a logistical issue as opposed to trying to make a statement of any kind. Yeah. I mean, I would have to say generally, like, uh, um, I was on board kind of at the early days of the pandemic. I did feel like, you know, when you were looking around the table in terms of the way that different countries were dealing with the pandemic crisis, you know, I did feel like there was some good governance that happened here in Canada, not in the, the immigration sector specifically, but just in general. Um, but I just, I, I can't get beyond the feeling that this whole election campaign comes in bad taste, um, mm. that, that this was the wrong time to say, I've got a minority and I want more. Um, and I think that it comes across, the whole campaign comes across as quite arrogant because not only was there that sense of it being the wrong time to put everybody to the trouble of this election, but also the fact that it was rushed and ill thought out, I think just adds more fodder to this kind of feeling that it wasn't really strategic. It was just that, you know, it's a bigger ask. Um, you know, I want more time. I want more, yeah. I want more power. Um, and so, but I'm not actually going to put in the work to actually giving you a clear sense of what my mandate is. Um, and that to me just kind of leaves a poor taste. Speaking about the start of the pandemic, can you imagine how different the current atmosphere would be if, my understanding is the liberals initially wanted Sinovac. Uh, like they wanted to partner with the Chinese for a vaccine and the Chinese kind of, you know, backstabbed the liberals on it. Imagine if like that had actually unfolded and Canada was getting Sinovac instead of Pfizer and Moderna. Like in a way, we're super lucky that their initial response actually fell flat. Dodged um, a bullet. <laughs> I don't know what the anti-vax movement would have been Wow! if the debate was like, everyone needs to get the Chinese vaccine. <laughs> like wow the keep you see it have a heyday with that yeah <laughs> like i uh and i know a lot of people who didn't get astrazeneca i can like it's just it's weird to think as we judge you know the their success on the pandemic how much of it how much of that success is because what they initially wanted flopped yeah um, yeah yeah anyway. no, i do appreciate how easy it is to sit in the armchair and critique but yeah um, yeah yeah for sure on to uh, the conservatives and their book. And we'll have to pick up the pace a little bit, but there is a lot in the uh, conservative platform, as Chantel was saying. It's a lot more specific. Um, I thought that their 2019 platform was the most specific of all the political parties, and this puts that one to shame. So why don't we just, we can almost just start going in order since it does have a dedicated immigration section with the first specific plan to create a mechanism where those who are waiting for their application to be reviewed can pay a fee for expedited processing with all revenues from this expedited processing fee being directed towards hiring additional officers to reduce processing times across the board at no additional cost to the taxpayer, which feels a bit weird to be concerned about the additional cost to the taxpayer in 2021, but uh, I feel like most parties have abandoned uh, being concerned about the taxpayer, but 
any thoughts on expediting, paying a fee to have applications expedited? I, I think that that's likely to be a little bit controversial in the sense that you, you don't want to have a two-tiered system where yeah. wealthy people go through faster than people without resources. But I, having said that, I, I do like the way that it was presented as, okay, it's not just a cash grab. This is money that's going to be reinvested into the system in order to make it faster for everyone, including people with low income, right? So when you look at it that way, it seems a lot more fair. But, but I still think some people are going to stop reading at the point where they see that, oh, it's a two-tier system. People with extra money can have their file expedited. That's not fair. But I mean, I think if you look at the whole proposal as a whole, it, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think I'm maybe one of those stop reading people, but I, I'd like to have an open mind about it. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I just, it leaves a, yeah, I, I get jammed up. I'd like to see more like fees tied to income or salaries. Um, I don't know how it would be done, but I think you can get, I think you can get the ref that goal is to get revenue that doesn't cost the taxpayer um, to increase the number of officers. It is weird to me that a work permit either costs $0 if it's like for a charity or something, $155 and that's it, regardless of whether someone's earning 10,000 or tens of millions of dollars. I feel like they could get the fees from there. I don't have, I mean, you can pay to get your passport expedited. Uh-huh. Um, I don't, I don't have a great philosophical objection to paying for faster. I'd have to see how it, you know, on which programs, like it seems a bit distasteful in the family class. Whereas, you know, an economic migrant with a job offer might be willing to pay a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I guess partially I see that it already exists. Like already it's the case that express entry takes six months and those are mm-hmm. much faster processing than caregivers, which have always taken two years. And so I sort of feel like um, it sort of speaks to which positions and which people are more important. And I guess, I mean, I don't want to get too like, you know, um, social contracty, but I do kind of feel like um, I just don't like the idea of prioritizing the different values. And I understand that, like, I mean, the money is going to the overall mandate, but I do think that there that there is some messaging that goes in there that, like, if you have this position and you're, you know, putting less money into the economy, somehow you deserve to be processed less quickly. And I don't know, it just doesn't sit right. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I, sorry, I was, I was going to say, like, I, I think the problem, though, with the with the sort of graduated fee that's based on income is that you would end up with a lot of very wealthy business people who don't have tax returns that are reflective mm. of their actual income, mm. who would benefit from that. Um, it, it would almost reward people for hiding income. And that I have an issue with. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's the Vancouver housing market. So that's like, um, so they were also committing to hiring more people at the IRB. Um, so when I read these, I'm going to skip some of the like, I mean, it's worth noting they're going to, they say they'll streamline application processing and reduce red tape. The conservatives have so many ideas that I'm, I'm going to skip over some of the vague 
the vaguer ones and focus on like what are the actual concrete proposals. Um, again, um, just on reading. this point, I don't want to take time, but I just want to say, and I don't know if Chantal has feedback, but I would have to say that one of the one of the success stories, in my view, of the pandemic has been the way things have worked at the IRB, like in terms of online hearings. It was something that I had mm -hmm. a lot of hesitation about, but those hearings are fast, they're efficient, scheduling delays have really been nipped in the bud. So I feel like, I mean, I know that that's more a product of the bureaucracy, but they have really, like, I just feel like that board is actually working at peak efficiency right now. I don't know if it's the same in Ontario, Chantal. Oh yeah, they they did that pivot very successfully. Amazing. And I mean, they, they should be held up as an example to other government departments who have not pivoted successfully. Yeah. Okay, so federal that's the court thing. as well was fast. Yeah. Ish, except the federal court was so tied in with those Rule Nine reasons and the mm -hmm. deals with yeah. the backroom deals with India and all that kind of stuff. So I don't I don't give the same shout out to the federal court <laughs> as I do to the board. The board really did it up, and yeah. like they've turned themselves into a much more. Um, Nimble. Like, I don't know. They're, they're, yeah, yeah, they're more nimble. They're more like, and this whole idea of like, I have no idea when your hearing is going to happen. That's just not the case anymore. I feel like they've turned into a really efficient. Well, and I think they've cleared a lot of their backlog because there's such a drop in new appeals and new asylum claims. Um, I really like this idea. I think it's crazy how long it takes to get an IRB hearing. Um, and I, I, I understand that there were issues with the previous conservative government when they tried to do everything in 30 days. Uh, but I do think that you know, a year to two years for a refugee claim is pretty crazy. So, I don't yeah. think it's just because of the drop in claims. I think they've been super innovative with new programs. And oh, yeah, yeah. It's definitely, uh, like definitely a mix of both. If the department filing. as a whole can actually become like the microcosm that the IRB was, that we would have come through this pandemic in a much more efficient way as, uh, as a department as a whole. Like they just they've really done it up. Mm -hmm. uh, also in here, um, this one's really interesting. So they're going to move technological, moving the technological infrastructure of immigration online and recording all interactions between immigration officers and applicants. Love help it. Ensure oversight, Finally. fairness, and accountability. I love yes, it. Please. I was probably on when I posted this on Twitter. That was the one that generated the most favorable response. Yeah, uh, yeah they're the always, ones like. Yeah, when you call the call center and they say this call may be because like please record this call. Please, please. <laughs> I'm begging <Yeah>. you because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get three different answers when I call three times. So. Well, the other one, and I read it as uh, interviews. Yeah, um, that all interactions. You, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you always Amazing. hear about this. He said, she said at interviews, and you get the transcript and the applicant saying, well, this doesn't reflect what was said. And there was all sorts of additional questions and 100%. their tone was really hostile, which isn't reflected. Um, it's kind of surprising that it's not all recorded and made available now as part of For a sure. Oh, this is more appeal. Th this is going to drive like the public sector unions crazy <laughs> yeah. because it is a bit of an encroachment, right? Um, you know, if, if you're working like to have your each and every move recorded all the time, it feels a little bit interventionist, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's like police and body cameras. Exactly. Um, For sure. I think but it's wow. feel like you're under a microscope. Yeah, I'm prepared to accept that as an encroachment, an acceptable encroachment. Bring it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crazy to me that in this day and age, we still have interviews that are like basically handwritten notes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, not not only that, but you have to like 
do cartwheels just to even get the GCMS notes, never mind an actual recording. That, that, that's like Shangri-La. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that's as you great. said, Steve, there's nothing about the tone in those notes. No, no. It would be great if you could get them at CBSA as well. Um, oh my goodness, yeah. Increasing cultural awareness training and using remote meeting technology to match applicants with immigration officers who best understand the cultural context of the applicant. I both like and dislike, like I like increasing cultural awareness. I don't understand the last half. Um, I like remote using remote meeting technology to match applicants with officers. I don't fully I'm interested in your comment. You're meh, um, Chantal. What do you Yeah. I don't think that cultural awareness training really is the issue. Um, I think it, what I find is more problematic in interacting with officers is more of like the bureaucratic mindset as opposed to mm-hmm. cultural awareness. And I, I think this whole thing with matching people with similar cultural background, I mean, it, it looks like a good idea, but I mean, I've, I've seen cases, for example, where people are dealing with sensitive subject matter. They do not want to talk to someone yeah. from their own cultural background. And like, yeah, you can get like true. all that, you know, cultural stuff mixed in that, it, you know, it can be a little toxic sometimes. Well, that's I what mean, I didn't some people understand. don't want that. Are they yeah. saying this matching people of cultural background or who understand who have taken these cultural sensitivity yeah. courses? Because it does read a bit like, an Indian applicant will get an Indian officer, which is yeah. weird. Um, yeah. It's a really I'm, good point, Chantal. I've had um, refugee hearings where we've had to ask the interpreter to leave because their presence actually was triggering for the claimant, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah I can no, Im- imagine, really you know, point. like an you know, a South Asian woman victim of domestic violence, for example, may mm-hmm. not want to be interviewed by someone from her own cultural background, may yeah. find that limiting. Yeah. So yeah, I don't for know. Sure. Yeah, I'm not in love with that. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. It's and... just more that they can't be a jerk. Um, I think it's more just like, um, accountability. You know, yeah. And it's not about cultural sensitivity. It's about just sensitivity, like, you know, and I think, um, yeah, no, I, I take that point. There is something though, to be said about like with arranged marriages, people who are from the West, like when I first started practicing immigration, I struggled a bit with arranged marriages. Now I understand the nuances. Um, and I think I can imagine that, you know, officers who don't go through that training when they, you know, like you see it all the time in uh, refusal letters, no one's smiling in this Punjabi like picture. Yeah, but uh, this is just in the context of, I mean, I I guess we're talking about two things, not just in the context of an interview, but also in the context of reviewing a paper file, right? Yeah, that's a good point. It's not clear what they're referring to. No, because I mean, we're talking about like, obviously, even when you didn't quite get it, you weren't going to be like, what are you doing? That's weird. (laughs) So it's that kind of training so that you're not going to like show your bias on your face and make somebody uncomfortable. That's one type of training. And then the other component is that you're not going to make assumptions about the fact that this is not a valid marriage because they're not smiling. Yeah. Uh, This is a big one, basically getting rid of ERPR R10. So letting applicants correct simple and honest mistakes in an application within a set amount of time. Currently, if a person makes an error, the application is rejected and they have to submit it entirely. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, that you, you remember a long time ago, like when 
we were all young and full of hope. <laughs> yeah. they, actually, there was a lot more of this. You would get officers that would just like give you a courtesy call and say, hey, you're missing the whatever. Like, would you mind sending it to me? I'll keep the file on my desk for a week. And if I don't get it by then, I have to send it back. You mean when but we yeah. were lawyers instead of robots that time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like this idea. And I, I actually read it differently. I wasn't thinking in terms of R10. I was almost thinking in terms of like these silly misrep findings that you get oh over God, like please. simple little mistakes that oh, somebody yeah. might have checked the wrong box on the form and realized it a week later and it's already too late you forgot to disclose that you made a u.s visitor visa application five years ago yeah, like yeah that's becoming an increasingly common one i know yeah. what is the relevance i don't know um but yeah i would love to see this implemented oh, yeah me too me too uh, family reunification. I also like R10 one. actually so far is my most important one of all of the things on this campaign. Mm. Getting rid of R10. Yeah. 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 Um, it's interesting because it kind of slowly, like it's just, it's slowly broadened under the conservatives with uh, express entry. And then the liberals seem to be under the liberals. The department has expanded it to the family class um, pretty much everywhere. Well, they, they seem to be trying to roll it back, though, like with that recent memo that's like only these things are an R10 bounce. I feel like it's almost coming from the bureaucracy. It almost feels like they've set um, a quota within their kind of ops centers that like, you know, you have these metrics that you keep that the number of applications you've done under your six month time frame, you know, and this is like you get some kudos within the and so, you know, if they, I, I don't know, it just seems like it's something like a product of that they've operationalized it and it's kind of become a wild beast of its own. Yeah, I think um, it, they lost. Uh it started getting interpreted in a, in a way that people didn't originally envision when they present at uh, the House of Commons Standing Committee. They always downplay the senior bureaucrats, how, how strict it is. Um, and I tweeted, you know, that like certain senior officials were saying during COVID, not a single application was bounced due to uh, incompleteness. And it's just, <laughs> that's like, actually not true. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if they're just getting like, Oh, the federal court says that it's not technically an application. So technically it's true because it wasn't actually an, I don't know what they're doing. Wow. Um, but yeah. I'd well, that's because they just sat on all those back. applications for a year and now they're just yep. sending them back now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, so this is an COVID. example of like the type of stuff that's been driving me nuts. They released that chart, which shows here's the number of applications that were received during COVID and family reunification. And here's the number processed. And it looks like they completely cleared out the backlog because the number processed is so much greater than the number received. But that's because they were only including the ones that had passed R10. So like, and it's, it's that type of non-transparency opaqueness that has really been bugging me lately. Yeah. Well, it's, it wouldn't be so bad if they'd send it back right away. It's the sitting oh, on I it know. for eight months yeah. and then sending it back. That that's brutal. <laughs> yeah. Well, they just, I just had a case where they, uh, my client had filed a TRP um, and they sat on it, a TRP with a work permit. They sat on it for 10 months. And then at the point that they finally decided it, after multiple follow-ups, they issued the TRP for only one month because her passport was expiring. Oh, and then they issued it without a work permit because right. she didn't it's have- too short. The six and months. And like, oh God, the kinds of things that it's like. And so I, again, these things are just, um, they're just, they, they don't favor anyone. <laughs> no. 
Uh, here's another one that I really like getting rid of the family reunification lottery and the parent and grandparent program and replacing it with a system combining first come first serve, but with weight given to those who are providing childcare or family support and language proficiency. The language proficiency one, I'm less, eh, but uh, although I see the rationale, but I really like the idea of it's the Dennis McRae, the weighted basing, basing it on the uh, BC limited entry hunt, which is like a weighted lottery going preference to people who applied early. In this case, preference to people who are providing child care. Um, I really like it. Yeah, I guess it depends what child care means, though. Like, I mean, if it actually means that they're going to be the, the primary child care provider. And how do you prove I'm that? This one. Yeah, exactly. And like, what does that mean? At what age? Like if the kid is 15, does that mean that they're not a child care provider anymore? Like it's just. That's true. Devil in the details. Um, yeah. I had read it okay. to be like, oh, if there's any minors, like the difference between, you know, a 25 year old single person sponsoring their parents versus you know, someone with kids. Or what if the like the adult sponsor has like a health issue, like that's not an included person or it's like, I don't know. Again, devil yeah. in the details, but I like the idea of it weighted in some way that makes some kind Yeah, of I, I like the idea of weighting it, but I'm kind of surprised at the idea to totally scrap the lottery system. It seems to me that it would, have, it would be a better idea to still keep a lottery system, but have a weighted lottery. And, and to me, it, it would be more important and I may be reflecting my bias because I don't have kids, <laughs> but it might be more important to prioritize people who have tried multiple times to get a position in the lottery and haven't been able to as of yet versus someone who's applying for the very first time and mm -hmm. may have a baby. Yeah, I don't know. It's a value yeah. judgment, I think. Yeah, for sure. I just I don't think it's a one size fits all that you have kids and therefore you deserve your parents more. I feel like that. Um, and I, you know, I don't. I don't know that I think that that's a, a value judgment that I want to make, but I also, I like the idea of the sponsorship requirements being less onerous. The idea of having to be here for three years as um, a Canadian income earner, it feels to me like that's a lot and the level of income threshold is too high based on the way that it is right now. Yeah. Um, pathway to permanent residence for all foreign workers. This is something that all the like, it's, it's interesting because I feel like every election for the past few election, both the liberals, the conservatives, presumably, and they don't explicitly say it, but the NDP all want this and it doesn't happen. Um, then kind of similar to the liberal platform, although to be fair, the liberal platform came after. So it might be that the liberal platform was similar to the conservative platform, they would implement a trusted employer system in the temporary foreign worker program, um, establish a same thing. There's expediting fees for labor market impact assessments in order to have them faster, have them process faster. And I don't have any trouble with that one for some reason. That expediting fee expediting for, fee for LMIA. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when it's, why. when it's business in the same way. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that goes back to what we were saying earlier. Like, you know, it depends what category they would apply it to. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. there's, you know, something tastes bad in your mouth when it's a spousal sponsorship compared to, yeah. you know, somebody hiring a temporary foreign worker. Yeah, for sure. 
uh, expanding the provincial nominee program. And yeah, I agree with that. The one that is a little bit interesting is revise how regions are zoned to ensure rural areas and tourism hotspots are not coupled with urban hubs. Um, that's a very opaque that. way to me of saying reducing the prevailing wage in rural areas. But I feel like I it agree. already is zoned in like big because you hear that complaint. I actually think the complaint that's bigger is that large employers, small employers, like everything's yes, by knock and some knocks are super broad and aren't reflective of what's actually uh, the prevailing wage for a position. Um, it's super niche. A lot of these like mm-hmm. pledges like what? I mean, that's part of what's interesting about the conservative platform is like, unless you're, you really know about these programs, you will read this platform and have no idea what it's talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's clearly not an attempt to buy votes. No, like, no. yeah. Like, <laughs> the average um, person is like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One that I mean, I, I would say that the whole knock system i mean again this is obviously way too high level for an election campaign platform but the whole knock system to me is like for a different era um maybe that um doesn't get a lot of traction um at the political level but um it seems to me like beyond the oa and b i get that oa b c and d but once you get into the knock I just feel like all the time spent on is this really that knock and is that really this job description? I just feel like it's a waste of time and effort. Um, prevailing wage as well. Like I understand there needs to be, but it just, it feels to me like the the bureaucracy behind the knock and prevailing wage. I just feel like there's got to be a better, less, <laughs> I don't know, confusing, <laughs> like abstract way of doing this. And I just feel like rather than updating the knock all the time, um, there's just got to be a more generalized way of applying these kinds of um, systems in the immigration scheme. Yeah. Now, this next one has like seven qualifying bullet points, but it's or five qualifying bullet points, but it's basically replacing government assisted refugees spots with more private and joint sponsorship places um i've seen them getting attacked a little bit on twitter by liberal mps for this is saying they wouldn't do anything for afghan refugees although there is a carve out for government assisted refugees for large scale resettlement like that um but yeah that's it's a, a pretty big pledge um i don't do that much refugee work uh i don't know if either of you have comment on yeah i yeah i'm of i'm of a mixed mind about this because um you know there will be people that say that the government assisted refugees are sometimes some of the most vulnerable right and they have no connections in canada with which to secure a way to get a private sponsorship So there's that argument at the same time, like the taxpayer in me thinks, okay, like if you have like a group of people, you know, most of whom are very vulnerable. I mean, if they weren't vulnerable, they wouldn't be accepted as refugees at all. You know, does it, doesn't it make more sense? Like if people do want to increase the number of sponsored refugees coming into Canada for them to put their money where their mouth is and they absorb the cost of that resettlement, right? That's an attractive proposition as well. 
And I mean, I've been a fan for a long time of taking the, you know, taking the reins off of the private sponsors, you know, forget about all these quotas and like the annual cap or whatever for private sponsorship. If you guys are willing to pay for it, file away. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't see any rational justification to, you know, take away that ability from private sponsors. And, and it, you know, the whole thing about requiring the UNHCR approval before someone could be sponsored by a group of five, that's another sticking point for me. That is and I mean, totally I, for me too. Yeah. 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 And I, I think if, it, and also the, the rule that you, you know, you can't be a refugee if you're still inside your home country, right? Like, so those 100%. are really some of the most vulnerable people. So if you adjusted all of that, I think, you know, maybe getting rid of GARS is a bit more palatable, right? Because yeah. the options for actually sponsoring people increase. Yeah, I think that those are those are much more um, those are much more sensible um, structural changes mm -hmm. that I think would open it up. But I think that that means that there needs to be more mobility in the sponsorship agreement holders program that it can't just be open for such a short period of time during the year. Um, right now, the access to those um, to those programs is so limited. Um, that, uh, you know, you miss the boat and you're waiting another entire year in order to be able to come up for consideration. And I'm not sure why that is. Maybe you understand why that it's, is. It's the, it's the quotas, right? Because the government only gives them so many spots in a year. And when you get, when you get towards a three quarter point in the year, they've used up all their spaces and they're literally legally not allowed to sponsor anyone else. So God help you if your civil war happens in October, because you're out of luck, Right which makes right. no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it really doesn't. Um, but yeah, I agree with you that, um, that 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 would make more sense. But I mean, I think the issue is, is here too, that like, that, that the agreement holders or the private sponsors, they want that feel good buzz. And so for them to be able to have a role in picking the people that they actually bring, that does seem to have part of the suasion for them. But I agree with you that as long as it's done in such a way that it doesn't pass over those most vulnerable. And that's why I think if you're doing the blended programs in the right way, and it's not precluding those who are still in the conflict zone, then I think that it would remove some of those barriers. But as it stands right now, I think that it is systematically designed to pass over some of the more vulnerable ones if the government sponsored um, refugees were to be removed. Mm -hmm. And I, like I, I see lots of, you know, groups of five and sponsorship agreement holders that that tell the government, like, just give us whoever you give us. Right. Yeah. It's not like yeah. many of them are not cherry picking, um, you well, know, that's so good. it reduces the whole logical, you know, rationale behind the, the GAR program. And I mean, if the government still wants to airlift 8000 Afghans tomorrow, like they can still do it. It just, mm -hmm. it, it, they don't have to do it through GAR. Like, you know what, frankly speaking, TRP them all, let them come and make their claim here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is a throwaway comment because this isn't in anybody's platform, but the idea of the way that the whole refugee system is structured right now, where, you know, you come to the door and make your claim and the moment that you do that, you get saddled with a conditional removal order and you're precluded from applying on agency grounds, you're barred from a PRA, all of these sorts of things. I understand 
that these things were introduced um, with this notion of fraud prevention. But I, I do feel like I would have liked to see that somebody was wanting to reconsider some of those things. Yeah. And I don't see that anywhere um, with anybody. And I feel like the negative impacts of the enforcement building that went into um, the refugee program um, years back um, I, I'm sorry to see that nobody's looking at trying to reconsider some of those um, strategies that were put into place, because I, I think that they've really been a disservice to genuine, genuine claimants. Yep. And finally, the pledge that uh, was left over from 2019 is closing the loophole in the Safe Third Country Agreement and working with the United States to set up joint border patrols at and near high traffic points at the land border, um, and deploying immigration and refugee board judges to common arrival points to expedite asylum hearings and straightforward cases. It's been commented before that, you know, the obvious issue with that is, will the United States take these people back? Like, set aside any philosophical uh, difficulties with expanding the safe third country agreement there's just the practicality of okay well if we're the united states has no legal obligation to take them back and if they don't if they don't agree to this what are we you know is this something that can even be done yeah i mean whenever i see something about amending the safe third country agreement it's like you can't unilaterally amend an international agreement you know, it does require cooperation from the other side, and I'm not sure we have that cooperation. You know, certainly we didn't have it under the previous U.S. administration. Now, it's hard to say, but I see no assurance in that regard. And I mean, I do have a philosophical issue with this. Like, this makes my head explode. Um, I, I think that's, you know, out of everything that I see in the entire conservative platform, this is the one that really, um, you know, jumps out at me as being a really bad idea. Hmm. I mean, it, I've seen enough cases of people who came to Canada through the US after having made a claim or not having made a claim there that got accepted here because our, our criteria are administered differently. Yes, it's the same international law, but there are big differences between mm -hmm. the way Canada and the US applies them. And I've had enough of those experiences to make me think that, you know, I, I, I would feel better, you know, for having vulnerable people adjudicated in our system as opposed to the US system. And I could think of a million good reasons why you would not want to make your claim there. And you yeah. might be a oh, very yeah. genuine refugee and choose to make your claim here. Yeah, for sure. The only thing I would want to add to that is that even if you did have the ability to negotiate a unilateral agreement, it's whether or not it would be administered <laughs> in mm -hmm. the way that you had intended. So it's not just about who's going to sign the agreement. It's whether or not you have the confidence that, um, as, as you said, Chantal, that the the principles of the refugee convention are going to be adhered to in yeah. the refugee system south of the border. And again, if you don't feel that that is the case, then um, philosophically, do you believe that it is a safe third country? And if you don't, then it doesn't matter what kind of deal they come to on paper. No. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I also I feel very disturbed at the way their policies seem to flip flop from government to government. You know, like this is international right. law. It shouldn't change depending on who your president is. Yeah, that's you know, like, right. You know, what one minute, you know, okay, you can make a successful claim based on gang violence or domestic violence. And then the next minute you can't. And then, then you can again. 
Or the what next kind? time you being from a particular country might mean that you lose your status or your ability to travel in and out of the country without fear that your your green card is going to or that your status in the United States is going to be in jeopardy. Like that's what happened under the previous administration. So again, um, that that sense of being able to advise or t- t- that that sense of confidence that somebody really has um, safe refuge in that country, I think, um, is is what's seminal to to this agreement. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even if even if you look at the the exceptions to the safe third country agreement as they are now, um, you know, why why should it make a difference to your refugee claim or your level of vulnerability uh, whether or not you have a relative in Canada? You know, because right now under the agreement, if you have certain types of relatives in Canada, you're you're allowed to bypass the safe third country agreement right. legally and you can make your claim at a registered border point. How is a person with a relative here or a person with a not rel- relative here? Like, how, how, how are they different? Whether it's a safe country. Yeah, yeah or, or whether you're actually in risk. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I mean, I'm, I almost feel like this is something that you know, the, the conservatives always have this tough on crime, tough on illegal, you know, enforcement sort of attitude, um, which is always there. And like, a, you know, a lot of people in that party, you know, sort of subscribe to that, you know, sort of the rules are the rules kind of way of thinking. Right. So I, I'm, I'm not surprised to see it, to see it here, but it, it's the one thing here that jumps out at me as being, you know, yeah. something I don't agree with at all. Yeah. Yeah, understood. Any I think other we're final have thoughts to on it. the uh, conservative platform? Uh, not for me, no. Pleasantly surprised, I would say, for the yeah. most part. Yeah. I mean, c- considering uh, that the public perception is usually one that, you know, they don't think enough about immigration or they're too tough or not willing to be lenient. Um, yeah. I, okay. I guess. I guess box. my one comment is is that it's a very ambitious platform, um, a very ambitious platform. And I would say, um, if they were to become government, I would say that trying to accomplish all of these things would be quite, um, like, it's a huge scope. Um, and so, part of me. Um, like I, I still tremble at the thought of what happened when the previous conservative government came in and like fundamentally reshaped the immigration scheme. I would say that was part of, that was perhaps the hardest time to be an immigration practitioner in my entire career. Um, and so I do find that, um, you know, part of me kind of quakes at the idea of this kind of like wholesale revamping uh, of systems and uh you know, while I do think that there are some, because I mean, originally when they talked about express entry, I I was very perturbed by the idea. I do think that a lot of good things did come out of the express entry system. I have to admit, um, but I would say it was a it was a pretty it was a pretty hairy ride because I think that it it got put into place very very quickly without 
the necessary development time and foresight. Like I remember speaking to um, the ops people in Ottawa and they were saying like, you know, when the idea came from the politicians, like, hey, we want to put in this system, this, you know, express. And they said, okay, here's how long it will take us to implement it. And they were told from high up, okay, well, you get a third of that time. Now go. And so it was on that timeline, that truncated timeline that they had to deliver this product and it showed you know it was kind of a mess when we first got it and it's kind of some of the kinks have been worked out but part of the problem with the program is that was the legacy that that we got a product that was developed in a third of the amount of time that it would have been developed and delivered had it happened in the private sector and so I think that those kinds of rapid like overhaul changes that happen too fast um, they always they always are a bit clumsy yeah well, they could always just get halfway into their mandate and then just call a snap election and yeah. then just ask for more yeah, time. Yeah, they might do that. That might happen. <laughs> Apparently, that's a thing. It. Yeah, that's a thing. We want a harder time. Our- harder time seeing the conservatives doing that. The uh, yeah, I don't know. It's um, I do find like at least as far as the prospect of a conservative government that their current leader seems much more willing to be persuaded by hostile media maybe i'm not wording that correctly like it's like i'm just thinking about the recent amendment that they made to their platform on the repeal of certain firearms and in the face of public pressure they changed policy um so i'm not sure especially if they're governing in a minority what type of government we'd see as far as whether it would be as harsh um as the last conservative government was certainly when they were in a majority so you mean we're not going to get jason kenny back uh, no, <laughs> I don't know who the immigration minister would be. That's a good question. Yep. Nightmares. Um, <laughs> the rest of the platforms are not nearly uh, as detailed. The NDP platform is almost verbatim copy paste from their 2019 platform. Uh, they did remove the, uh, the big change was actually what they didn't include, which was they removed the reference to abolishing the safe third country agreement. Um, but they say that they will like this is the thing with the NDP platform. They say that they will recognize people's experience, contributions, and ties. Uh, They will uh, take on backlogs. They will, you know, welcome more workers, protect newcomers, take on unscrupulous immigration consultants by ensuring the industry is regulated by government, which they've already, liberals have already done. Um, treat caregivers with respect and dignity by providing them with status and allowing them to reunite without with family members without delay and resettle refugees. So it's very vague. It's a little bit, little bit floofy, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. very, very vague. Um, there's really, it's so vague, there's not much more to, to really say. add to it. Yeah, like it's, yeah. Well, I, mean, to, I, I don't know why f- they take this uh, approach, but yeah. Well, to be fair, they've never they've never been in federal government, right? Like they, they've never been in a position to have to implement any of this. So yeah. not having that actual core experience, I wonder if it that makes it hard to make specific recommendations and promises, um, you know, without having had the experience of having to implement anything before. I went and read some of the old platforms under Jack Layton, and they were a lot more like they were yeah, they would call the right of permanent residence fee the Paul Martin head tax that needed to be repealed. Oh. Uh, apologies for the you know 
um, a Chinese head tax, which they would tie together almost. They, they used to have very specific, you know, pathway to permanent residency for all. It's, it was under Tom Mulcair that they seemed to shift to this very vague uh, platform. And then again, mm. it was just, uh, it's basically copy paste a lot of it word for word from the last one. They're, uh, the, they're the only ones who have anything about consultants. I don't see any mention of that in any of the other platforms. That's kind of interesting. I mean, yeah. you, you know, if, if, if you're going to make like just 10 points, it's interesting that they use up one point to talk about that issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody else that's really under the radar. The other thing that's interesting is none of their private members bills ever make it into their platform. So they've called like Don Davies and Jenny Kwan mm-hmm. uh, always call for a, a appeal, you know, an appeal mechanism for temporary resident visa refusals, the end of uh, excessive demand requirements. It's none of that ever makes it into the platform. So I don't, I don't know the in, what goes on internally uh, or how those two MPs, what they think about that, but yeah. There could also be some internal stuff. Like I'm not, you know, I don't really have a deep understanding of politics, but I, I'm wondering if it's just not a big vote driver for them. Um, so they choose to focus their energy elsewhere on topics that are more important to their base. Yeah, could be. I would be surprised if it wasn't though. Hmm. I mean, especially for those two MPs, but just maybe not nationally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next is the block. I'm not going to spend too much time on the block. Quebec focused <laughs> party, surprisingly, not surprisingly, yeah. wants more powers for Quebec, abolish the safe third country agreement and require that uh, permanent residents uh, do their citizenship test in French and pass French language requirements. It's the platform equivalent of staring at your belly button. <laughs> yeah. The yeah, Greens, gonna... <laughs> uh, yeah. The Greens just released their platform yesterday. Hmm. Um, and half of the immigration platform is a very broad, and it just says, you know, reviewing and addressing all forms of discrimination and hate across the immigration system doesn't really explain how they'll go about doing that mm-hmm. they'll abolish the safe third country agreement they will reduce application fees based on someone's income which is someone that I, something that i had mentioned earlier that i'd like to see mm-hmm. and they will i'm not quite sure what they're referring to here they will review the adoption ban that is in place against muslim majority countries and let oh I like I know Pakistan has issues. Um, yeah, it's not exactly an adoption ban. the The issue there, if I understand it correctly, is that because it, it, a lot of Muslim countries, if if they're not particularly secular, uh, they don't have the concept of full adoption because you can never cut off the father's rights. So, yeah. um, it, and the way that it's defined in our legislation is that there has to be a severance of the parent-child relationship in order right. for something to be considered an adoption, and some of the provinces have issues signing off um, right. when that's the case. Yeah. But I don't think that that's what the jurisprudence, anyways, we should, we could go on on this, yeah. but I'm I don't know if I sure. would call it a Muslim ban. No, um, it's not. I don't know if they're although, trying to import U.S. politics from the yeah. Trump Muslim ban, but yeah. Yeah. What, what strikes me about their platform is like, it's just, no mention whatsoever of anything to do with the economic side of immigration, which is an important aspect. Like the social aspect, of course, is also important. 
um, but like nothing at all about temporary foreign workers, international students, nothing like that. Yeah. No. Um, I mean, they've they've had a, you know, they've struggled with their uh, campaign quite a bit. And mm. I think at the start of the campaign, they even hinted that they might not even have a platform and that people could just Google last elections. So, and they've fallen behind uh, our last political party, uh, which is the People's wow. Party of Canada. Um, yeah, I think the Green like polls today. Wow. We'll see what actually happens on voting day, but I think the Greens are down to like two, three percent nationally, and the PPC are at about ten percent. Are and they the- in danger of like not getting official party status? Well, I don't even know what the threshold for official. What's yeah. the threshold for that? I, I think it's around either. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and they're... I think the PPC will possibly get, you know, yeah, 10-ish percent of the popular vote and no seats. Wow. Uh, surprising. Just the way our system works. Yeah. Yeah. So the People's Party of Canada would basically make the COVID level of immigration that we saw in 2020 permanent. They would reduce immigration uh, permanent residency to around 100 to 150,000. Which is about half, am I right? Less than half. Yeah. Well, if we do 400 this year, if they meet their target, um, it is like as low as a quarter. Right. But that would just be, that's on the permanent resident side, like in theory, although they say they will also reduce the number of foreign workers, Mm -hmm. abolish the parent and grandparent program. Uh, They will have mandatory in-person interviews where applicants will do a Canadian values, be asked questions about Canadian values. Wow. And uh, the entire port of entry will become a, um, the entire port of the entire border will become a port of entry such that the safe third country agreement will be across the whole border. Is there going to be a wall? <laughs> I think they said that they'll build fence. Okay. Okay. I think there uh-huh. is the talk about yeah. building fences. Yeah. Um, so not quite. Well, a this lot. isn't an immigration platform. It's an anti-immigration platform. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a it's a big slash and burn. It's like less of this, less of that. Cut this off. I mean, I I don't know how anyone could possibly think that you could attract a larger proportion of economic immigrants if they can never sponsor their parents. Yeah. No. I mean, who would come here? Well, or especially like, I don't know, it's already weird that we have like such a gap between the amount of foreign workers that come every year and the amount of people that can become permanent residents. But how many people would want to come here as foreign workers if they could never immigrate, um, that sort of thing. It's really hard to know whether the rise in popularity is based on their immigration platform, if it is anti-vax, which is their other big thing this year. I shouldn't right. say anti-vax, anti, well, yeah, anti-COVID vax, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anti-COVID yeah. vaccine mandate maybe is a better way to describe it. But so it's hard to tell where this rise of support is coming, whether there is a, you know, an anti-immigrant groundswell or what is driving this rise. Yeah. Well, it's it's more than just anti-immigrant. I mean, they 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 also talked about repealing the Multiculturalism Act. So it's it goes beyond just newcomers. Yes, yeah. the Bloc actually calls for that too. Um, like really? Yeah. Well, just for Quebec. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know what to say about this. I, I can't yeah, say I'm, I know. I'm surprised, to be honest. Um, I, I think that a big part of their base are people who are quite angry and disaffected with society in general. So yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised by any kind of extremism on the platform. And I say ex- extremism with like a small e. I don't mean literally extremist, yeah, but like polarized view, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's the type of thing, though, like, as I was just saying, with our the way our electoral system works, uh, they probably won't get any seats, um, but they will get, you know, if there's a party that's getting 10, 15 percent of the vote, um, if there ever was a change in the electoral system, you know, it'd be interesting to see how. If it would go up. Um, if they actually people thought they had a chance of power. I don't know. It's hard to know what to make of it. It's just more that thing that you that we said from the very outset is that there is a groundswell and that can't be ignored, that there is this, uh, this is the voice of discontent. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, whether I, I, it... I think what you're saying is important. Like it, it can't be ignored or dismissed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not helpful to talk about people in terms of being like crazy or irrational or anything no. like that. Like this is exactly the kind of, of thinking that, that, you know, fed into the whole Trump movement as well. It's For like sure. you, you have a group of people that do at, at the core have legitimate concerns mm-hmm. um, and they're ignored or dismissed or poo-pooed by, you know, people a little further left on the spectrum. And, and then, you know, that's when things get very explosive. That's very dangerous when we For stop sure. listening, when we stop listening to each other. Totally. And it strikes me a lot of it is fear-based too. And I think to ignore people with growing fears and growing discontent, um, it, it's just, um, it can have a powder keg effect. And so I think no matter what, and I, I think that that's another thing I just wanted to say about my perspective on um, the liberal campaign and just not just sort of the the governance is that at some point, like when when Trudeau first got elected, his attitude towards um, uh, the, you know, bringing in new refugees at the time was like, look, this is what we're going to do. This is how we feel. I don't really care what anybody says about it. Like, this is just what we're going to do. And I kind of appreciated that at the time because it was sort of like, really, it doesn't really need, you don't need that buy-in. This is a crisis and this is what Canada is going to do. And I, I sort of thought that that was refreshing. But I think at this particular moment in time, there does need to be more, you know, it's not enough to just be like, well, it's just because I say so, <laughs> you know, um, there does need to be more of like, okay, here's what we're thinking. And I think that um, this is, I think, coming full circle that um, the communication strategy has to be better. And it's not enough to just say, it is that way because I said so. And that that goes to the immigration platform, to the immigration policy changes, to the incorporation of Afghan refugees, to, you know, even the vaccine policy and all that sort of thing. I think that the time has come to actually try and reach out to that disenfranchised populace and be like, we're going to actually tell you what you're, you're thinking and why. Otherwise, they're just continuing going to continue to get polarized. And so um, that's just what I'm not seeing in this platform and why I feel that it's a, it's a letdown. Well, and the other thing that I think needs to be addressed, and I think it's consistently polled as one of the top issues in this campaign that maybe the liberals weren't expecting was affordability. And there's you know, there's a tie-in between welcoming 400,000 
that's a bit of a misleading number because a lot of them are already here, but the amount of people who come to Canada and migrate either temporarily or permanent versus the amount of houses that are in the country. And this election, there seems to be a consensus from the Liberals, the Conservatives and the NDP that when it comes to foreign money, that that needs to be either taxed or outright banned in the case of the Liberals and the Conservatives. And I do wonder how many election cycles away we might be from that shifting from, you know, there's no problem with foreign money and people coming. Now we think there's a problem with foreign money. Does it eventually, you know, if, if the messaging isn't there properly, or if there isn't an increase in housing supply, does that eventually go to the problem is both foreign people and money Mm. such that the PPC message starts to resonate more? I think also when you're talking about it in the context of refugees, that like there's this there's this notion that like refugees just are a drain on the public purse. But I think nobody is trying to like kind of um, titrate that messaging, you know, like, yes, of course, when there's a moment of crisis, you know, there's this effort to um, to resettle those refugees to Canada, but like look beyond the moment of crisis that like the people that are pillars of our society are people who came to Canada as refugees. Their children go on to produce these outcomes. Like I think that people are just very focused on this charitable act and they don't see how this works into the, not just the next generation, but even five years down the road. And I don't think anybody's working to kind of change that narrative. Um, And that's disappointing because um, everyone gets so excited about, oh, we're the good guys. We're doing this humanitarian effort. And it's just polarizing this notion that this is a big handout. And yes, of course it is. But like, even from an economic standpoint, you can look at these as being some of the greatest contributors to, you know, to our society. So I just feel like, uh, yes, it's harder work to tell that story and it doesn't feel as rewarding to the guy who's like patting himself on the back saying, aren't I a nice guy for bringing these people out of a conflict zone? But at the same time, it will have a much more broad reach in addressing some of those fears that are coming from the other side of the electorate. I haven't seen the same opposition to the Afghan refugee resettlement that I saw online, at least to the Syrian one. I don't know if you've seen more, like, has there been a backlash? No, I don't don't think it has the same positivity. Like, I feel like there is much more of a sense, like with the Syrian refugees, you could argue that, you know, like we didn't really owe the Syrian, like people fleeing Syria, going to Europe, Canada didn't really owe them anything. We were kind of, you know, resettling people on a humanitarian mission and people either supported that or opposed it. I find with the Afghans, it's a lot more like Canada really, like the country, we screwed up in not being able to get these people out. And so it's hard to be both super positive about it, which, you know, I don't think the liberals are getting any credit for 20 to 40,000, you know, Afghan refugees. And there's not the same uh, groundswell against it because I think people on all sides recognize like we do owe these people something and it's in the... I think because Canada has been involved in that country and been invested in that country for such a long time, I think like the average Canadian probably feels a lot more comfortable at the thought of the Afghan people. Like it feels like something we know a little bit more, 
Whereas with Syria also, that consider that the conflict was different, right? So, um, you know, I think the main concern, the, the panic that people were feeling at that point was that are, are there insurgents or yeah, for terrorists sure. inside yeah. that group, right? Like That's we're not totally feeling true. that the people running away from Afghanistan, that there might are be terrorists. Taliban in there. Yeah, yeah like a, there's not that same concern. And I'm not saying it's true or not true in either case, but I, I wonder if that's feeding into it. Yeah, making it different. That's a really good point. I don't think that there is that like, which negative elements are we going to be allowing to infiltrate our society? Because right. the numbers were similar at that point, weren't they? I mean, by yeah. the end of it, there were a lot more. Like I think there was more 000. like, yeah, okay, that's right. But again, it's not like massively different, even at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, when you think of it, like they, uh, the people were panicking in the Syrian crisis, saying, "Well, they're, they're, you know, they're not doing proper security checks. They're, you know, getting approved way too quickly." Whereas the Canadian government was wholesale throwing people on planes and flying them here with zero <laughs> due yeah. diligence, as far as I can see, and and yet there's not the same there's not the same outcry um at the moment and it could also just be a function of people are distracted by other stuff right yeah I think it's a little that and I am still getting a lot of that run of the mill like you know um maybe I'm just oversensitive to it but when people who are running other types of files uh with me make comments like oh you know how come they're not doing my case when they're so generous with the Afghan you know and I'm just like those ones like um And I'm getting a lot of that. So I think that there is still like a pretty strong baseline ignorance to what the situation is. I think we live in a pretty um, closed bubble where, you know, we circulate with other people that, that share some of the same values and that have the same level of education and understanding of what these political issues are. But from our client's perspective, it's like, well, why them and not me? Well, Um, and you know what, like is not, good messaging on that is the department mm-hmm. when someone inquires about their application the department yes. sending a response saying sorry we can't pay attention to your application because we're focused on afghans which yeah. is such ridiculous. a weird message yeah not only that message. but the, the the message is like we're not even going to answer you right now yeah i like, know because you can't because even I, inquire apparently yeah. ottawa is empty right now because they've all gone to afghanistan yeah, exactly. now about somehow and like it's a very right. weird like, my what? application's been pending yeah. for a year and a half but we are now not able to even receive an inquiry yeah. from you because of that which again based on what you said earlier Chantal, about you know what the actual response is it's ridiculous to think that those frontline um, officers or call center agents have anything to do with the afghan initiative so um, yeah. I call BS on that. Yeah, me too. And I think the general public is too. And I think that when they see through that stuff, the same way as the, you know, the banner saying, don't worry, we've made a deal with the Taliban. Um, I think that people start to be like, yeah, I don't believe you. And I just feel ignored. And I think that that does um, people aren't stupid and they might not understand truly the machinations of what's happening, but they understand that they're being fed a line. Um, and so it, it gives rise to frustration. And you just, you just need to look at Twitter and follow uh, Mario Mendicino for a minute and see all of the tweets coming back at him. Like, how come you're not paying any attention to my application to see that there is, there is a lot of blowback, um, I think, at that level anyways. Yeah. Anyway, I think this might be our longest episode ever. <laughs> you might have to edit significantly. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the, the nice thing about a podcast. We don't have to worry about any uh, 
I mean, and I think you're starting one, right? We didn't, uh, we should mention yeah. you're starting oh, yeah. a podcast. Yeah, and I, I would love it if, if one or both of you would be a guest on, uh, we're doing a podcast with Eamon Publishing. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Sawicki and myself, um, you know, we, we've authored a book and we're now starting a podcast and uh, it, it'll be like very, very informal, super casual, lots of fun, like sort of like a different um, approach. But yes. yeah, we, we would love it if you guys would join us. Amazing. Is yeah, this a new sure. book, um, Chantal, or is this? A... No, it's a, so it's the book that we've been publishing for a while. It's in the third mm-hmm. edition now, but we just sort of, you know, um, thought that a podcast might be a nice complement to it. And we're bringing out a, um, a new series that we're um, the general editors of where we've got uh, Stephen Green has written a book um, on, uh, I think it's temporary entry. Then we've got Raj Sharma and Aris Gigian doing one oh, yeah. on inadmissibility, Adrian Smith Great. and Michael Batista on family class, that sort of thing. So, yeah, well. Wonderful. Well, if you want to send us a link, uh, I'm sure that Steve can figure out how to put in a little plug when we uh, put the banner on for this episode. Likewise, likewise. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Chantal. I knew, yeah, this was uh, fun. We knew that you would be a wealth of information on this topic. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That time really flew. I can't believe the time. I know, yeah, I know. Right? I'm like looking at it, it going, fast. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye.